Okay, comrade, this is the People's School final class on the history of the communist movement in the world and in the United States specifically. I'm just giving you a review of everything that we've done. We've done a lot. We started with the first common turn in the 1800s with Karl Marx. We went to the second common turn that had to do with the 1905 socialist movement in the world and in the United States. We then went to the period of the Third International. We went up to the dissolution, 1943, of the Third International. We then came back as the common form, which was uh, in the late 40s. And we're up to now the period of the 1950s, the McCarthy period. We went through that. We went through the 60s and the first break in the communist movement in the United States Progressive Labor, PLP, in 1959. Milt Rosen, New York district organizer of the old party. I remember that period. Then we went to the period that was during the issue between Stalin and the Soviet Union and Khrushchev and Mao Zedong, that period. We went up to the 70s, the SDS period in the late 60s, the 70s, the split in Students for Democratic Society, the appearance in the late 60s of the Black Panther Party. We started to talk about the new American movement in the 70s. We went through the splits that came on from the Trotskyite movement in 1928, where appearance of the Socialist Workers' Party in this country with James Cannon, if I remember his correct name. And then we went into the split in 1956 over the Hungarian counter-revolution, which the communists called the counter-revolution, the capitalists called the revolution against socialism. There was a split in the Socialist Workers' Party, and that's when Workers' World was born, and they had their actual first break. They were a tendency within the Socialist Workers' Party, a tendency. The Trotskyites allow factions in their parties, communists don't, Leninists don't. And then there was a split on 59, and when Sam Marcy became the head of the Workers' World Party. I wanted to mention that everyone looks at these splits in a different way. I have my own personal view. I think they're negative. I think they're counterproductive. I think many times the provocateurs by the government, like in the Black Panther movement, like in the period of the 50s in the Communist Party, uh, the Black Panther movement in the early 70s, late 60s, a lot of times splits are caused by government agencies, and other times it's caused by ideological differences. There were other groups along the way, for example, that were local groups, basically, people in different parts of the country. In Detroit, a couple African Americans got together in the factories, like there was a group in Dodge, Called River. Drum, Dodge Thank Revolutionary you. Union Movement. And there were other groups around the country. I can't even think of them. Socialist Union of Baltimore in this area. There was the Potomac Socialist Organization and was also Philadelphia Workers Organizing Committee. Those groups were the so-called anti-revisionist, anti-sectarian and dogmatic new communist movement. They saw the main danger as dogmatism especially the line around China's foreign policy about the three worlds theory. So they rejected that. And there was quite a number of people in that. And the Guardian was in that also, the Guardian newspaper. And then they became the differences on how to build a party. 
the ideological center and the groups that I mentioned wanted to colonize the factories. It was called Fusion, the Fusion Line. And the Guardian said, no, no, no. The best thing to do is get all the intellectuals first and develop a line. And then we can get other people to join. So that's that on that. Okay, I just want to add to that about the Fusion Line. I'll go into that now. I hope Mm. people are taking notes. The Fusion Line is still held today by Freedom Road Socialist Organization, one of them. There are two groups that have the same name. They split. That group also split a couple of years ago. One group claims to be Marxist-Leninist. The other one does not. And the Fusion Line basically is a position that holds that they claim Lenin held, and in which he reported on this, And I had a discussion with people from Freedom Road Socialists in New Jersey a year ago, and they explained it to me. I think there's a difference between the fusion, the way it was put forward by Lenin and the more recent groups. Lenin simply said that in the early stages of the revolutionary movement in Russia, you had Marxists who were mostly from the intellectuals, And you had workers who were stirring in the factories, but the Marxist intellectuals had little connection with the workers, and the workers had little connection with Marxist theory. So that was what Lenin meant, if I'm putting it basically correctly, by fusion. All right, thank you. The period of the 80s, it was a period of my involvement very strongly in the CPUSA, Give you an example. In Staten Island, which is a conservative borough of New York City, we have five boroughs, Manhattan being the most liberal and Staten Island being the most conservative. This is a Republican borough and the Democratic city. It's liberals versus conservatives. They're both bourgeois. But in Staten Island, in 1983, our club had 25 members. That's a lot for one club in one party. And I'm convinced that the CP, we used to have conventions, and I went to one or two of them, and there were literally four or 500 people there. And each one of them was not representing themselves. They were representing a club. So that's how I know that the old party did have large numbers of members throughout the country. So that was in 83. 85 the change of leadership with Gorbachev, where he brought in this new idea of perestroika and glasnost, which means restructuring of the economy and openness. Glasnost means openness. Under that policy, many people, I believe, began to question what was going on in the communist movement and how it affected us in this country. My club on Staten Island left the CP in 1988 over the issue of perestroika. We said that perestroika was going to destroy what we had in Eastern Europe. We never thought it was going to do anything to the Soviet Union, but eventually, looking back, we know what happened. There were tapes being sent out by the CP on the Gus Hall in which he was talking into each club. Each club, he was talking about how there are excesses of perestroika. The genie was taken out of the box. Anti-communist, anti-Soviet elements were now allowed to use the TV, the radio, the newspapers in a socialist country, the Soviet Union, in that specific country, against the government. 
Whereas there were other people on the leadership of the Communist Party, like Angela Davis, who were pro-Gorbachev at the time. Anyway, getting up to the period of the splits that came in 1991, this hit the fan, excuse the expression, and what I call the counter-revolution, succeeded in the Soviet Union and in Eastern European countries. Poland, Solidarity Movement, led by the CIA and the Catholic Church, among others, succeeded in being the first Eastern European state to break away from the Warsaw Pact Defense Coalition. And that had its effects in every communist party of the world. That was when parties, one after another, that were bordering on such an infection for revisionism that they were bordering on teetering, they used that as an excuse to leave. So the Communist Party dissolved itself in Italy, which was the biggest communist party in Europe. In France, it started to go a certain direction. I want to mention that the South African Communist Party under Joe Slovo, S-L-O-V-O, who was in the leadership of that party, used it as an excuse to come out and attack against socialism in the Soviet Union. He said it doesn't work. This was the head of the Communist Party in South Africa. I think that was the beginning, in my opinion, of a long, slippery road that that party took to eventually going into a position where their alliance with the ANC and the results of that alliance. So every Communist Party went through a problem. That's when the CP in this country split, and it split into a group called the Social Democratic Group called COC, Committees of Correspondence, and they eventually broke away completely in 91, and they were supporters of Gorbachev. They were the social democratic element. The rest of the leadership of the CP, with Gus Hall, who was now in his late 80s, was disabled physically, and I think things were going on mentally also with him as he's getting older, hardening of the arteries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera started to become ineffective leadership. I'm not talking about ideologically, the leadership became ineffective. They were basically led by other people in the office, like Sam Webb, who later took over in 2000 when Gus Hall died, and then John Bechtel. I'm going to stop right there, open up the questions. In the Third International, there were about 20 or 21 preconditions set up for the most part. The article attributed it to Lenin that in the era of uh, transition from socialism to communism, that the Communist Party of Marxism-Leninism or the Borjevik has to had a strict precondition to have any united front with any anti-imperialist movement. And he said that any movement that claims to be anti-imperialist, unless it's believed in the dictatorship of the proletariat, you do not form any association or united front with that organization. And this is about 50, 60 years ago. And uh, our movement is officially trying to continue the tradition of Marxism-Leninism. And are we justified in the light of those preconditions to form any united front with all kinds of progressive and anti-imperialist movements in North America and globally that do not have a clear stand position on the dictatorship of the proletariat on a global scale. It's the first one that says every party has to not only deal with it by rote, but explain it in clear terms so that it's understandable to any worker. 
I think it was the first of those points. I think what I'm saying is mixing up two different things. One can have a united front with all sorts of groups around specific issues. If we have anti-war demonstrations, we don't insist on the dictatorship of the proletariat, which would narrow it down to just Marxist-Leninists. But what we don't do is merge the Communist Party with any group that does not support the dictatorship of the proletariat. When those 21 conditions are set down, they apply specifically to Communist Party. However, the national and colonial question had a little bit of difference because Lenin was very clear that in some countries, since the proletarian is very weak, that communists should and can support the progressive national bourgeoisie as opposed to the comprador bourgeoisie. They support the petty bourgeoisie and they should support the peasantry in any independent movement that they had. And that's reflected in how Lenin's views on the Muslim countries on the outskirts of the Soviet Union where he applied that policy. The Third International was very clear on that. At the same time, he also said that the party should be independent and build up its forces, but yet not come down on these progressive movements as reactionary, because that's a Trotskyist line, that they don't mean anything and they're not pure workers' parties. The other contradiction was, as time went on, and Comrade pointed out, some of these parties went too far in that line. In other words, you look at El Salvador, where after a while the Communist Party of El Salvador liquidated itself and became part of the FLN. In South Africa, there's real problems because they're so close to the ANC. There's been some criticism about that uh, within its own party. Lastly, when Joe Slovo came to the United States, he was invited to speak on 23rd Street. He refused to go to 23rd Street and speak to an audience on the struggle in South Africa. And that's a fact. The CPUSA, at that time, during 91, I take it that the counter-revolution was relatively swift in the way that things were bought up really, really quickly. Did the CPUSA have a position on that process at all that you know about? The like view of the CP was, at the time, a book came out called Paris Strike of Its Rise and Fall by Michael Davidow, D-A-V-I-D-O-W. It was called Perestroika, and he was supportive of Perestroika. It was put out by international publishers, in which basically it was a supportive view. They claimed that Perestroika went too far, that it was a good idea, but it went too far. That was the position of the CP. Others in the left, I'm thinking specifically a book called Perestroika by Sam Marcy, M-A-R-C-Y, which was closer to my view, that was that perestroika was wrong from the very beginning because, the big quote, you cannot put a saddle on a cow and expect the cow to act like a horse. A cow is a cow, a horse is a horse. Uh, Of course, of course, a horse is a horse. (laughs) But what he was saying, what Marcy's analysis was, the book was taken from article in the workers' world, was that the very idea of trying to reform socialism by using capitalist methods is not going to work because the nature of the beast of socialism, the nature is to work different kind of economics. 
than capitalism. So I suggest people do some research. There was a book written by a guy in England. He's the head of the Communist Party, Great Britain, ML. Papo Bra wrote a book on perestroika also, a very good book on perestroika. Yeah, The Complete Collapse of Revisionism. Yeah, that's his book. And it's interesting if you look at all these different books, see where they're similar and where they're different. That's the answer to your question about what the CP's position was in 1991. I think their position was really similar to Gorbachev. I'll tell you why. Gorbachev said he did not want to see the end of the Soviet Union. He wanted to keep that formation together. What he wanted to see was a different type, an economically different type of Soviet Union. And I think that's the difference between our party and Gorbachev. Basically, our party's position is that if you changed the economic structure to a more capitalist structure in the Soviet Union, even if you kept the name USSR, it wouldn't have made a difference because it's not the USSR that Lenin and Stalin built. That's what I understand. We were talking about the fusion line, and I guess we discussed what the original position that Lenin held, what he meant when he was discussing it, but what was it that the fusion parties, were they coming to it from the same position, or was there a difference in that? Uh, just a distortion of it, because... They actually called for people to proletarianize themselves by colonizing, that's the word that was used, in the different factories. Now, there's nothing wrong with communists getting jobs in factories. The way they did it was similar to PL. You cut your hair short. You try to patronize the styles of thinking what the working class would look like. Huh. Totally different. I wanted to make a comment about the split between the CP and the Committees of Correspondence. Was that a result of the convention in 1991 in Ohio? And when the COC was created, was it created as a non-Marxist social democratic group? I believe that they tried to form a Marxist group within the COC and it was defeated. And then also I wanted to know when the split took place and the COC was created, they took people who were in charge of the CP were also had buildings that were in their name, for example, Herb Aptecker in Northern California. Not only did he leave the party and go away with the COC, but he also took the building for Northern California District with him and basically stole it from the CP. And I was just wondering if anybody remembered that. Yeah, it wasn't specifically Herb Aptecker that did that. There was a collective of people in Northern California that was led by Kendra Alexander. And she and her people did that. The National Office of the Party had to sue to recover that property. And they actually won in court, but it was reversed on appeal. So to this day, the party lost all that. They don't have it. There was a hall that was historically a party thing. It went back many years. It was called Finn Hall. It was in Berkeley. And there was also Valencia Street in San Francisco where they used to print the People's World. And when they lost that facility, all that printing equipment for the West Coast, they had to print the paper in New York, in New Jersey, and ship it by air to California because 
the printing wasn't available anymore. From the Third Congress of the Comintern in 1921, guidelines on the organizational structure of communist parties, on their methods and content of their work, it says, there can be no absolutely correct immutable organizational form for communist parties. The conditions of the proletarian class struggle are subject to changes in an unceasing process of transformation. The organization of the vanguard of the proletariat must also constantly seek appropriate forms corresponding to these changes. Similarly, the historically determined characteristics of each individual country condition particular forms of adaptation in the organization of the individual parties. But this differentiation has definite limits. Despite all peculiarities, the identity of the conditions of the proletarian class struggle in the various countries and in the different phases of the proletarian revolution is of fundamental importance to the international communist movement. This identity constitutes the common basis for the organization of the communist parties of all countries. On this basis, we must further develop the organization of the communist parties, not strive to found any new model parties in place of pre-existing ones or seek some absolutely correct organizational form or ideal statutes. What he's saying is that there is no perfect communist party. The proletariat is changing every day, and the conditions of capitalism change every day. And so if you want to build an effective structure, you have to have a common turn. So we're up to yeah, 1991. Between 1991 and up until 2000, the Communist Party was still led by Gus Hall. In 2000, he died, and that's when the other people, Sam Webb, who came out with a pamphlet called Reflections on Socialism. Which was strange about it is he wrote this on his own. It was published by the old party, but yet he did not print it as the general secretary of the party. That's very strange. It was basically his own views. Not anybody else in the Central Committee, which they call National Committee. Nobody in the National Committee, or what we would call the Central Committee, had any input into that. And in that pamphlet, he says that the Soviet Union was never socialist. He says it was post-capitalist. I never even heard of that term. It sounds like he made it up. Post-capitalist. In other words, they got rid of capitalism in 1917 but they never built socialism. And I think it's interesting, that's a quote from Reflections on Socialism, of all people from the head of the Communist Party USA. By the way, he left the Communist Party two years ago and officially joined the Democratic Party. Oh, officially. So I think that it's a good example to show how... There's a seepage of bourgeois, as we always say. We got to be wary of the seepage of bourgeois ideology into the working class movement. And no matter how we try, it seeps into our movement. It seeps in the form of revisionism, 
social democracy, among other manifestations. 2000 was a beginning point for us. In 1993, got together and formed a group called U.S. Friends of the Soviet People. And that organization went to Canada a few times, sent representatives. We worked with a comrade who put, of course, a magazine called North Star Compass. Everyone know, if you look at the North Star and you're lost, it's supposed to find your way home using that star in the sky, if I'm correct. And so we called it North Star Compass, and there were delegations from different countries of the world that came. But that was the beginning, in my opinion, of the fight back in this country, in the communist movement, to regain a Marxist-Leninist, pro-Stalin position in the communist movement in this country. We were told, I was told, by the headquarters of the old CP, that we had to make a choice between following the new party positions or following a pro-Soviet position. Of course, it was not a choice for me. So I and others stayed with U.S. Friends. U.S. Friends grew to a larger formation. Eventually, it was the U.S. Friends that gave birth to a group called National Council of Communists USA, NCCUSA. And it was at that point that we started to draw across positions of why we came together. It was called the seven points at the time, and we added democratic centralism, so it was eight points. It was called the eight points, seven points of unity, and it was that formation that gave birth to PCUSA, Party of Communists USA. That's up to 2014 when they had their first meeting, and then 2016 we had our Congress, and also what was happening is there were other splits going on. In the left, Workers' World had a split about 12 years ago, 16 years ago, and a group called the Becker Family broke away from Workers' World. To this day, many of us in the left are trying to find out why they did that, and they formed a party called PSL, Party for Socialism and Liberation, which, by the way, both Workers' World and PSL, from what I understand, do not have a constitution. I could be wrong on this, but my understanding is they don't have a constitution. Currently, at this time, there is no constitution that Workers' World Party has. None. There's a national committee, but it's not like a central committee. There's the same people on it. There's no political bureau. They're struggling with that now in order to rectify that, but I don't know how long it will take or what it will take. But currently there's not, and the same with PSL. You mentioned Workers' World and the PSL. Neither of them have a constitution. How do they elect their leadership? I've never seen anywhere stated what their policies are. They have positions. How do they come up with positions? Like when you join them, what are you actually joining? To join a political party means they have to decide collectively and print on what their policies are, what their positions are, how you make decisions, all of this stuff. Am I missing anything? Or they just produce a paper and they have a half a dozen people come up with editorial and you join it. What is it that you're joining? They don't seem like parties to me. They seem 
like formations or groups? But that's my question. They are a militant Menshevik organization is what they are. As far as election goes, they've never had one. They've appointed people to, I think, the National Committee. Dizrit Griswold and other people like that. She was the daughter of Vince Copeland. So, again, it's almost a very militant Menshevik organization, very much like the New Left. They constantly are at every demonstration. I mean, anything that happens, put together these signs and they go out there and that's it. There's no real focus in terms of concentrating on one particular mass movement that's already there where you can get into it and you could see where they're at and also maybe recruit some people. It doesn't happen. They try to recruit people, but basically it's in a haphazard way. They do have candidates, but they get their people from people who just go to a mass demonstration, get the paper, and then come to a forum. And that's it. And then you join. Thank you, Comrade. From the old party, at least it's from the 2000s, were there any purges from members, at least from the revisionist faction? And were there any prominent members besides Sam Webb that had revisionist views? My answer is yes. The whole leadership basically had one form of revisionism or another. Some of it was way deep from way back, from the anti-Stalin days. Some of it was recent. But it was all across. Nobody would say anything, for example. They were afraid to say anything, in my opinion, when they got rid of the paper. The leadership got rid of the print of the paper, and that's it. People complained, but there's no power in that party. You don't have any say. So that's what happened. As far as expulsions, they haven't expelled anybody. What they use the term, we're now going in different directions. You're going in one direction, and the party's going in another. Of course, who made the decision for the party to go in that new direction? They don't tell you that. So I find the problem with all these groups, whether it's the CP, whether it's Workers' World, whether it's PSL, there's no democracy in those formations. I think those who are on our phone call know that we bend over backwards to have democracy and people give their views without being slammed down. But that's the only answer I can give you to that. This is where we are today, and that's where we're ending tonight's class. All right, comrades, we're going to adjourn. Thank you. Good night.